Mary, we've just been graced with a pink supermoon, and I have a really important question for you. I'm listening. As I often do in these openings. So I want you to think back on your personal catalog, and I would like you to be reflective for a moment about the first time that you heard Rebecca Black's Friday. Were you thinking about JFK the first time you heard it? Did that come for you later, et cetera? Yeah, always. I mean, the line sitting in the front seat, sitting in the back seat, when you're waiting at the bus stop, it's like it asks one of those great questions or mysteries that never gets solved. Like, why are you at the bus stop if you're going to be given a ride to school in a car the whole time? You know what I mean? It's an intervention, you know, in a critical way. I do also need to know upon this 10 year anniversary, where were you the first time you heard that there is a decade remix? <laughs> uh, I was in this chair two minutes ago when you dropped that on me. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. Wow. You also told me she was gay and I, I like am shocked. I didn't know. It's wow. Friday. It's Friday. Wow. She's in love. I don't know. Welcome, everyone, to American Girls, the podcast. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm still Allison. Wow, Allison, like you've hit us with, you know, one of, I don't know if she's one of the great American girls of the 21st century, but she's an American girl of the 21st century. Yeah, I mean, how much her life has changed in that gap between her debut as a 13-year-old to now her second debut as a 23-year-old. I think she's wonderful. I think she's up to some good stuff. I actually like Friday as a song. I'm not ashamed to admit that. And, you know, I just listened to the first 30 seconds of Personal, her new single. You and I both were dancing along to that right here and you know now finding out that she's a queer person I feel compelled to support her whatever direction this is going in but you know I'm I'm a fan I'm a stan she always also makes me so relieved that I grew up just before you had the ability to I don't want to say embarrass yourself on this kind of digital scale but like I didn't have access to social media when I was the age she was when she made Friday No. And you might be thinking, why invoke Rebecca Black at this time, this moment? Aside from the 10 year anniversary, Rebecca Black, as we know, was what she came out with was the product of like a highly cultivated, very carefully planned production studio. Right. Like Rebecca Black did not just emerge from nothing. And I think in that way, she has a lot in common with the character we're going to call Kaya. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you know, something that strikes me as a comparative between them is that you might say that there was some rough guardianship or mentorship behind the scenes that was helping them shape a narrative that Taylor Swift might say they both should have been excluded from. I'll just say that. But before we get into the books, I just want to, speaking of guardians, you know, bring up what I'll call a traumatic film in the same way that this was a traumatic book, a traumatic movie we watched to relax together, which, you know, basically set me on edge for days now. So we read Kaya's Escape and we said, let's have an escape from Kaya's Escape. Mm -hmm. So we thought, you know, who better than Rosamund Pike to take us (laughs) into a different journey. We all loved Gone Girl, right? We've all been there. So we decided to watch I Care A Lot. And I think I care a lot about what that film did to me and what this book has done to me. Mm -hmm. Did either have a consistent plot? No. No. Were the creators of both willing to do pretty much anything to shock us? Yes. Were there portions of both where I thought... You know, to paraphrase, you know, Janelle and her mother from Teen Mom, nothing else worse can happen. And then quite a lot worse would happen. A lot of worse did happen. Yeah. I mean, I watched that. I'll call it a film. And afterwards, she said to myself, I am not well. And no. that's how I felt after reading this book. But also, it's like when you get into elder abuse stuff, that like really sends me and I didn't know that that's what that movie was about, but it gave me flashbacks to say anything, which also has at its crux, like someone who's conning 
skimming off the top of a nursing home. And this is like a comparable fraud situation. But my question to Rosamund Pike is why? Like, why are you mixed up in this? You did not need to be in this movie. I really hope I have not researched this. I hope she got a beach house. Like, I hope something came of this for her where she was like, this will be three months of my life that I'm going to black out immediately when it's over. So I would say there's no way that that film took three months. The premise is that a woman steals from elderly people and she picks the wrong mark and there are severe consequences, but are there? And it's basically the epitome of the girl boss remix on TikTok that's like, I hate all girl bosses, except because you find yourself kind of enamored with portions of her story. I think what happened was they sat down at a table and they said, are we brave enough to take on Elizabeth Holmes yet? And someone said, no, Uh, no. but imagine if we cut her hair to her chin and we got someone from Gone Girl to play her and her elderly people. And someone threw a pen across the table and said, that's it. Nailed it. I mean, yeah, I I think like Elizabeth Holmes in some sense, like I'd have to look into this further, but would not surprise me if she was the ghostwriter of this screenplay, because in a sense, it's like this woman could be the hero, except she's definitely not. No. Yeah. Oh, man. We can't fully recommend this. It's basically a movie that doesn't really know what it wants to be. And it ties up with a bow at the end. But that's sort of an anomaly, because otherwise, like everything that happens between the beginning and end does not make sense. No. I mean, that's 2020 for you, though. It is 2021. It is 2021. (laughs) That will that will do it. Oh, my God. She also loses a tooth at one point. You know, that's traumatizing to me. I can't handle that. I just went to a new dentist today. Teeth stuff really gets me. So I wish I'd known that that was a piece of it. That's all I'm going to say. I do. And, you know, this this show is not going to be three hours, so I don't know that we can even get into this. But the discourse around Kaya not having teeth, the the general American Girl doll teeth discourse, who has the time? You know, I mean, I think it's important, but I have been doing more research about how her face mold was created and the way that her face was designed and different folks that were involved. You know, I... I didn't know that that was a part-time job. The teeth journey of American Girl. You know, I can't handle that. So thank you for taking that on because I can't, I find teeth triggering. So thank you. Thank you for that. Mary, I come home today. There is something beautiful sitting on my front steps. I take a closer look. It is a wonderful package from HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh cuts out stressful meal planning and grocery store trips so you, like meaning us, can enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in 30 minutes or less. You can try meals ready in 20 minutes or less, lightning prep recipes, and quick breakfasts and lunches. These are perfect for any busy schedule. Yeah, I mean, it's truly shocking to me. I was so intimidated by the thought of doing this because I've never done a meal kit service before. And as you and I both know about ourselves, we are not chefs, we are not cooks, we have no professional training. And, you know, we we are lazy. We will do the absolute least. And so with that in mind, I just have to say it's truly stunning. When I made one of the first dinners with Anna the other night, Anna, who loves to cook, really enjoyed making this meal as someone who genuinely loves cooking. I don't, and I still really enjoyed making it because it was so easy and fast. We made the Gouda burger, which I highly recommend. And, you know, I can't wait to try the other meals. HelloFresh's ingredients, they come to you right from growers, right from a farm to your front door in under a week, contact-free, which is something we all really want at this Mm. time. So if you want to go to HelloFresh.com slash AmericanGirls12 and use the code AmericanGirls12, you'll get 12 free meals, and that does include free shipping. Again, that's AmericanGirls12 as your code, or HelloFresh.com slash AmericanGirls12. So please check it out today. It is America's number one meal kit. And get back to us with your own thoughts and fave recipes. Are we prepared emotionally, spiritually to get into this book? We are. And I think we should say that if stories about kidnapping, abuse, 
threats of sexual violence, if that kind of material bothers you, Kaya's Escape may not be the book for you. Some of these things are explicitly covered. Sometimes they are hinted at, but there's a lot of traumatic moments in this book and Kaya is enslaved for most of it. So if that's material that you think isn't something that would be useful for you right now or has a connection to you, this is probably not the Kaya book to read or, or to engage with. I'd like to read us the very brief description. The best one I found is right on my own very book. Kaya awakens to the fierce barking of the village dogs. Enemy raiders have come. As Kaya and her blind sister, Speaking Rain, head for the woods, Kaya hears whinnies of panic. Are the raiders trying to steal her horse steps high? Kaya hesitates just as the raiders leap onto stolen horses and start a stampede. The raiders thunder right toward Kaya and Speaking Rain, sweep both girls up onto their horses, and gallop off into the night. Now Kaya and her sister are captives. How will they ever get home? We answer that right now so you are not in suspense. Neither of them make it home by the end of the 70-some-odd pages. Correct. Getting into the plot of this book, it is disturbing on many levels, a lot of the events that take place. But essentially, as you're saying, neither Kaya nor her sister or person who is part of her family, like a sister speaking rain, make it home. Neither does another enslaved boy um, who Kaya um, meets when she's enslaved by what we're led to believe is a rival or different, distinctly different tribe, which is never identified by name. Yeah, so we open in the book on what's a pretty sort of, you know, tranquil scene in some ways where Kaya is harvesting with her family. They're getting food ready. And I think part of why we're seeing that scene is we're getting some situational awareness of the time of year that it is, right? So it's not quite cold yet. And by the time that this book ends, we are deeper into a colder season. What I think we're supposed to infer is winter. And Kaya's biggest problem at the start of the book is she is really annoyed with this magpie nickname. I'm going to say this. I've been watching YouTube videos of magpies. If someone calls you a magpie, like don't let it get to you. I think they're beautiful birds. They are black and white birds, which, you know, we know that life is not. This quote I found online, if someone calls you a magpie, you should probably quiet down. There's a lot surrounding this book of sort of like Kaya's failures or Kaya's Mm. foibles. She's in this scene where people are making fun of her and they're picking berries. And because she is rightfully concerned with her horse, she is in a situation where then she is slightly more vulnerable and she and Speaking Rain are kidnapped and enslaved. There's a lot in this book about Kaya blaming herself. Mm -hmm. And until literally the last page, others essentially affirming or the text affirming that it is her fault. It is not her fault she got kidnapped. No, it is absolutely not her fault. And there's a lot of shaming, as you're saying, from the early pages of this book. So like, as you're saying, it opens with a scene in which Kaya and the other women and girls are picking berries and all the men, importantly, are not around. They've all gone off scouting for a future hunting trip. So all the men are away. And there's this sense of originally Kaya says, can we sleep out in the meadow? Um, speaking Rain and I, because it's so so nice out. And her grandmother says, no, all the men are away. So we're all going to be sleeping inside um, for safety. So you kind of have some foreshadowing that something's going to happen. But there's immediately shaming because they're just doing this simple act, which you could think of as like a really beautiful link between generations of women. Like there's this is kind of a life cycle moment. She's picking the berries and she sneaks one. She eats it, which like, hello, human content like everybody (laughs) does this if you go berry picking and somebody's like magpie like whatever saves them for the rest of us because they're intended to be dried to be part of kind of like the winter food store for the whole group and you know she comes back with her berries and she gives to a younger girl like younger girls are allowed to eat the berries at will and her grandmother's like remember when you were that small and that moment is weird to me because it foreshadows the rest of the book which is like you were saying this off air that Kaya is treated as a much older person when in fact, Mm -hmm. like she is nine years old. So I would have been like, grandma, I'm nine. Like, I don't know what culture in what culture you would be expected to practically be an adult at nine years old. But there's this weird narrative trope, even in this essential initial moment where it's like, she can't even have a berry and let people and people cannot let her live. And they're like, 
what are you doing? When like, I'm sure other girls are sneaking a berry. Grandma is sneaking a berry. But it's kind of just like, it It starts it off on a sour note instead of like the sweetness of the berry. It's actually sort of sour. And what I do not admire about Janet Shaw in this moment is that there's a really nice, just one sentence in which the grandmother takes a leaf from a berry and puts it down on the ground as an offering, as like a, as a moment of gratitude and ritualized gratitude for what they've taken from the earth for their food store. And that would have been a really interesting moment to kind of have a generational like ritual of gratitude to kind of give us as the audience an entree into kind of the cosmology of the tribe or or of the family or a sense of their shared history maybe some oral history storytelling is kind of in book one and instead it's like here's just this weird anecdote that we're going to like punch down on kaya and shame her and foreshadow that something really bad's about to happen which it then does yeah so kaya is made to feel guilty about the fact that she's very concerned for her horse when they see enemies enter the camp and as you said we pretty much only learn of them as enemies. We don't really get many other reference points that would help us to learn who they are, what their motivations might be, other than that they want to steal from these people and and take people from the community as well. And so part of the deal with magpies, which is really interesting, is they talk a lot and they have a lot of calls and they have a lot of songs. And what's interesting to me about this book is there's so many moments where Kaya is so mature and brilliant, the way that she's able to not just communicate with people with whom she doesn't have a shared language, but the way that she understands that her sister communicates through song, the way that she understands how later in the book to talk with a Salish boy when they don't actually have any common words. So it's like interesting that this kind of dig and this sort of bad nickname to her of being a magpie is kind of accurate in a way that is also flattering, right? You can watch videos of magpies. I haven't done this. I don't know who would do this, but like chatting in an office and like talking with people. And this notion like that there's just too much kind of coming from her is sort of shaming. But she's also told to go to her horse because, quote, nicknames don't mean anything to a horse. So this idea kind of of like, take this girl who is being too much for us right now put her with the horse and then she is made feel bad for caring about her horse. Like we understand that childhood is relative, it's culturally contingent, but the amount of thing Kaya is able to do in this book and her level of skill meshed with the fact that she's constantly feeling bad about herself kind of didn't sit right with me based on the mission of what these books could do. I couldn't agree more. And that's, I think, what was so troubling to me was you're kind of reading these books as an adult on two levels, right? Like, so there's the story you're getting. This is kind of what Kai is going through. But then there's the story of the story or like what the rollout, what effects, what effects the stories could have. And if I was a parent of a young girl, I would be really concerned about my daughter or son reading this book because of what the, what the takeaways might be unintentionally or not, which is sort of like, if something bad happens, you should immediately do an inventory for how you inadvertently caused the bad thing to happen. You should not only accept blame, but you should seek out blame for any traumatic thing that happens in the life of your family. All of this is really bad. Like, this is not healthy behavior for children or adults. So it just sort of mystifies me that this is the story we're getting. And I think that it's even more dangerous to do this kind of narrative move um, with the first indigenous American girl because it sort of plays too into this kind of storytelling pattern that we've seen across American Girl, which is when we have a non-white girl there, well, and the white girls too, like there's this move towards trauma as a meaningful narrative tool. And I don't find that useful or interesting, but it's even more fraught when you situate it in a non-white girl. Yeah. And there are points where, again, and I'm not trying to harp on the magpie thing, but I think it's actually really fascinating and revealing in all these different ways. On page 27, Kaya is really struggling and we learn over the course of her captivity that the people who have taken her are also abusing her animal and that this is incredibly upsetting to her. And on page 27, Kaya wanted to cry out, stop, 
but she could do nothing to protect her horse. She was a slave. And I was thinking about the way that this story came out and other conversations surrounding what was essentially like high profile captivity at the time, um, like J.C. Dugard or, you know, other people who were kidnapped, some of whom did eventually escape. And I think of the way that certain people like Elizabeth Smart have made this kind of amazing career for themselves out of Mm. advocating for women saying like here's how you can think about safety here's how you can keep yourself in these kinds of situations and it really broke my heart to read that page where she is so hurting for her animal and again like to talk about actual like real warnings for this book her animal is hurt and she has this very strong connection and we can talk later about why the horse really is so central to this community and I think why it was put in in this way but this thing of like she could do nothing she was a slave compare that for a moment with the way that Addie is represented and thinking about kind of parallel traumas that run through the books the way that Addie is expected in book one to survive a near drowning right? Mm. The way that Addie is witness to other people's trauma and the way that Addie has to navigate different ways of being unfree. I will also say this to Janet personally, the scene in this book that involves Kaya ultimately really freeing herself and then also finding her father and like pretty pretty brilliantly like finding this way to reconnect with her people. It involves a snowstorm and we all know where that came from. We've read Kirsten, girl. That's, I mean, that's the Kirsten playbook, number one. Yeah, I mean, except there wasn't a dead man in a cave this time around. Not yet. Not yet, but... Not yet. We could be going there. But, I mean, it's like, yeah, it seems like she's directly drawing from Kirsten, but notably without an enslavement arc. And just to say, like, the way that she becomes enslaved is that she she's awoken in the night, she and her mother and grandmother, speaking Rain and her sister, and her mother just says, like, get dressed and run towards the woods. And she decides she's running towards the woods with speaking Rain and decides at the last minute to try to, like, save her horse from being stolen. And because she sees another adult woman doing the same thing successfully. And when she, you know, then there's like a violent scene where horses are like literally jumping over them as they're forced to the ground. And then she and Speaking Rain are like literally picked up and put on the back of a horse, one of the raiders as they're described. And that's how she's enslaved. And like, they're basically starved. They're like taken very far from home. Like she must've been absolutely terrified. There's just so much in this book where it's like, why is this the plot that you went with for this book, Janet? Yeah, and when Kaya, I think there are some visuals that are really kind of especially poignant when Kaya is being led away from home and she's riding on the back of a horse with the person who has taken her. She keeps nodding off. She keeps falling asleep, which is you know, a human universal when you're tired and he hits her so that she'll stay awake. He keeps kind of having to push her so that she won't fall asleep or fall off the back of the horse. And when she arrives at the place where she's basically going to be detained, you see this change in her, right? Like this change where she's afraid to kind of speak up And for really any person, I don't want to make it about her age, she's so hyper aware of the fact that her sister is not going to be valued. Mm -hmm. And there's lines about her being afraid that she'll just be, quote, another belly to feed and that her sister may not make it. Her sister then kind of takes it upon herself to have this comfort role and to sing to comfort and care for people who are enslaving her. And when you think about kind of like mammy history in the United States, like the way that she kind of makes sense of her captivity is to be helpful and like an emotional support. It's it's a really pretty, I mean, I know we keep saying this, it's a pretty upsetting and dark chapter. Yeah. And, you know, as they're on the journey to wherever they're from with these stolen horses, like literally Kaya and Speaking Rain are tied up every night so they can't run away. So it's like not only are they 
enslaved and they're being kind of starved, beaten. We have this recurring trope of like them being tied together and then tied to a third person to make sure they don't escape. So it's just kind of like these really jarring visuals of confinement. And then once they arrive, as you're saying, what you see a scene in which speaking rain is introduced to a woman who to, for whom she's going to be working and and Kaya reads visual disappointment without hearing the exchange in the woman's face when she's told that speaking rain is blind and so then Kaya gets into this mindset of like well I have to be twice as good to make up for speaking rain so that like they keep both of us basically and don't murder my sister and it's like it's so much and it's to me, it's like just unconscionable because for so many different reasons, like I don't think this is good portrayal of good portrayals or strong portrayals for young women to read. I don't think this is admirable representation of Native Americans. And it's definitely not an admirable representation of disability because basically, as you're saying in a relation to Mammy narratives, it's like speaking rain is distilled into a caricature. All we really know about her is that she can sing lullabies that soothe Kaya as they're being taken to their alleged new home. But like, that's literally all we know about her is like, she's completely defined by her disability. We do, we do have one passage and I thought this was it kind of stuck out where Kaya is trying to make sense of her sister's like very sharp ability to hear people because her sister is very in tune with how people sound or like what we would think of as like slight changes in inflection. And Kaya recognizes that this is something her sister has to do because she doesn't see the world. Mm -hmm. She doesn't see what Kaya is experiencing, but she has this other way I was thinking a lot about all the different, very intense social cues, language we would use that Kaya has to pick up on constantly. And then the fact that she notices that one young man is treated, I would say not even on par with them. Like he's treated worse. His clothes are tattered. And in the front of the book, he's described as angry. And this is Two Hawks, who is of the Salish people, who's also been kidnapped with them, but he has been in captivity much longer. What did you think of Two Hawks? I mean, he's another one, another character who is defined by like basically one or two traits and that's it. And like when we meet him, what we learn is that he is like physically disheveled and like unclean there's a weird like privileging of hygiene that kind of carries over from book one as being as like having moral value like if you are clean you are good so you learn that he is unclean and it's supposed to be a sign of like how long he's been enslaved and how hard he's been worked um but you also learn that he he's being tasked with labor that he at least genders as women's work yeah and he's not cool about it, which I think is understandable because it's forced labor. But one of his defining traits, the way that he's written is basically providing a kind of sexist foil for Kaya, where Mm -hmm. when they're in a wilderness survival situation, he refuses to do certain things because he says he's done with women's work. And I don't know that like that was the time to make that switch. I haven't You know, it's not my place, but he really is written very much in kind of a weird way. Like, it gave me a lot of flashbacks to the way that Ben and Felicity would relate to each other, where it's sort of like, here's a boy who doesn't get it, but the stakes are very different. But also, like, in a similar way to Ben, it's sort of a boy who misses, dearly misses his family and his home but also never talks about any of his past in detail. So it's sort of like he's a boy from nowhere who we own. The only thing we have to latch on to are these really unfortunate hot takes on gendered labor expectations in a similar way to Ben, who at least we learned somewhat about his past, but we don't really know that much about his history either. So it's sort of like these boys are introduced as foils to kind of move the plot forward or play some kind of specific role, but they don't really get full personhood either. No, and I think he's also a way that we learn about Kaya's wisdom in the moment, right? Like, that's not the way it's represented, but they start to kind of bond. Kaya learns that they both know a kind of visual sign language that they can talk with each other, and that's how they make a plan to run away. And basically, Two Hawks turns to Kaya and says, 
now, you know, like he's been ready for this, but Kaya develops a plan. She talks it through with her sister. They decide how they're going to do this in the best possible way for all of them. And again, much kind of like the plot bunching in some of these stories, there's a lot that goes on even with their escape. Like there's so many layers to what Kaya and this young man have to figure out. Mm. And I guess I kind of thought, why? Like I was remembering back and and there are some there are some moments that are a bit out there in Kirsten, but remember how long we spent with the beehive? Wow. Like could we could we maybe have some like there's so many moments where we're able to infer this kind of amazing amount of knowledge that Kaya has about the world around her and everything like the way that she's able to read people and I actually really like in some ways the thought behind the berry picking scene right like we're immersed in this world and I think there's real value for that for a young girl of the 2000s who's like growing up with Rebecca Black to hear about a life that may not resonate with you but that's valuable yeah and I think too it's kind of nice to see like in a sense like you could read the scene a different way of like here's a moment when young girls contributions are valued because they're part of this larger family system in which like they're needed to pick a lot of berries so that they can be dried in time and you know they are valued even as Kaya isn't as an individual person or she's treated with suspicion and called magpie and all this stuff you know like it is nice to see yourself part of this larger maybe kinship network where you're doing work that your grandmother did and like this is passed down and it's not present. Something that seems kind of interesting or not interesting, but may explain sort of the choppiness of the plot or the fast, overly fast pacing that takes place where we don't land on a moment for seemingly enough time as it warrants is that if you're going through a traumatic situation, I think like you don't process stuff, like you're just moving from crisis to crisis and trying to get through it. So in a sense, like you could read the pacing as reflective of what the characters are experiencing. But I feel like that's crediting Janet Shaw with too much. I actually just feel like there's a lot of jumping around that doesn't get resolved. Do you remember how long we spent chasing a puppy in Samantha's birthday book? Literally can't. Yeah. I mean, I can, but I can't. So Allison, recently, something I need to share with you is that I, you know, was doing some what I'll call spring cleaning around here. And there was kind of a rude awakening, not for me, but for Anna in the sense that she insisted on counting how many boxes of cereal I have in our house. So do you want to take a guess how many boxes of cereal I have currently in this apartment? Keep in mind, Anna does not eat cereal, just me. 12. No. 15. Guess again. Are we counting mini boxes? No. Oh, you think I buy mini boxes? Are you crazy? It's 21. I wish I was like feeling 22 Taylor Swift style, but you know, I'm fully legal at 21 boxes of cereal. And I wish I could tell you there were repeats here. No, I am an aficionado. I'm a cereal stand for the ages. And I have to say that Magic Spoon has been a really beautiful addition to this collection. And in the past couple weeks, I have reached out to other cereal lovers in my life just to kind of like sort of brag, but also spread the good word about Magic Spoon. Yeah. So a lot of podcasts will tell you about cereal killers. This is where we talk about being cereal lovers and also the importance of spelling and homonyms. So Magic Spoon has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. There's also only 140 calories per serving, and it's a keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free, I'm just going to say it, meal. So. You can have Magic Spoon at any time of the day because you are an adult. We've been enjoying the four flavors that come in the variety pack. My particular favorites right now are the fruity and frosted together. Mm -hmm. Don't sleep on this, folks. Morning, night, snack, doesn't matter. Those two together, excellent. You put me on this and that's actually what I had for lunch today and it was genuinely very good. I was trying to think of some way that we could be superheroes and it's like I'm fruity and you're frosted but I'm not really sure how either of those land. I need to work out the theory a little bit more. So while our listeners help us workshop that I'm going to recommend that you go to magicspoon.com slash American Girls Pod. 
Get a variety pack and try it today. And be sure that you use American Girls Pod at checkout to get $5 off that first order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Although that will not come up because it's genuinely very good. So remember, get your next delicious bowl of cereal at magicspoon.com slash americangirlspod and use the code americangirlspod to save $5 off. You can also go to our website, americangirlspod.com, and our sponsors page to find the links right there. I did think it was striking that they chose to not pushed Kaya into a box of Kaya learns a lesson, though this very much is a book about learning lessons, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think part of what the book unintentionally reveals, I did make a list. I'm just going to read it. The various various things that Kaya knows how to do that I think are really extraordinary. Um, So she's very aware of nutrition, how to feed herself and others. I would say she's extremely sensitive to others' needs, particularly her sister. She can sing. I'm going to say that she does search and rescue operations because that's what I see. 100%. We have medical care. We have an awareness of harvest and cyclical agriculture. Um, She's able to read and make trails and lay down carns. She has a really strong personal sense of what hygiene works for her and her own comfort. Like she is very upset. She can't stay clean the way that she likes. She's cleaning herself twice a day, love. Um, She has a really shrewd understanding of who's an insider and who's an outsider because even when they're traveling away from captivity, she's aware. I just think she's really good at relationships. She knows how to communicate via symbol and sign language. And last of all, we know that Kaya can track, read scat, and do trail work. That's it, folks. Wow, also shelter design and construction. Absolutely. Fishing. Kaya can hear her sister sing once, I'm sure she's heard it more than that, but in the context of the book and play it back. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I mean, yeah. I mean, her skills are in some ways, I would say incalculable, but you just calculated them and read us a list of them. So thank you for that. It's sort of like reading the narrative of a girl who's going for her gold award in Girl Scouts. P.S. I never made it that far, but theoretically. And instead of everyone in her family kind of rallying around her to reach this somewhat arbitrary goal of like signs of growing up or being a skilled person, everyone in her life seems to distrust her. And in, and it's like, we've moved away from the learns a lesson model with this book. And yet the lesson that she allegedly needs to learn is identical to the one in book one, which is you need to like privilege caring for others before you do the selfish thing of like, paying attention to your horse as opposed to paying attention to family members who might need your care and attention. But I also don't think that that's the lesson she needed to learn in either book one or book two. So the obsession with that through line feels weird to me. I also think that's kind of what she's excellent at. I think she's a very good read of people. I think she's a very sharp person for like truly any age, her emotional intelligence. And I think a thing that I'm even struggling with is in the peek into the past, there is kind of a framework. There is a really good discussion, I think, of boarding schools Mm -hmm. and indigenous education a century later. But there's this kind of framework, you know, that is typical of American Girl, which is to say, you know, Kaya didn't go to a classroom. Her world and her family were her classroom. And I think where we're kind of struggling with this is we were raised in colonial thinking. And so the way that we evaluate Kaya and the way that Kaya was written was, here's some really smart insights into this culture, but put it into a box that is by definition colonial. And I think that that works differently with a Felicity or a literal pioneer, (laughs) Kirsten, than trying to break a mold with a character like we're still trying to evaluate her based on like these standards right and I just did it too well yeah and I was actually reflecting on what we used to say about Kirsten before we reread the books which is that we remember them as being boring books which like no comment I wouldn't say that they're boring now having reread them but 
I was thinking about why we used to say that about the books. And in some ways, I think it's a marker of Kirsten's and our own privilege. Like, because Kirsten didn't have to have 50 million plot events or like a major traumatic thing, although she did in her books, we just block that out. But you can you can be successful in American Girl and not have an amazingly detailed plot line or encounter all these traumas and prevail over them. Not necessarily. I mean, for Janet Shaw, that seems to be an important piece. But there's something about the storytelling here where it's very like caricature based. It seems like Janet Shaw wants to address a lot of different traumas and have Kaya be kind of victorious over them. And the peek into the past like points out literal traumatic things that Native Americans were put through as part of the imperialism of the United States and so on. But you kind of have to wonder like what a decolonized American girl book would read like. And I think we had some conversations off air about Native American YA books that are out right now and different TV shows, which we can talk about, and how their, their approaches to storytelling are quite different, namely that they don't engage in what some call trauma porn or like feel like they need to contend with major abuses towards their people or controversies. Instead, they just want to kind of explore what it is to be human, which is itself like, I guess, a privilege of whiteness in these colonized spaces. What's so interesting, I found a thesis online that we'll link to by Veronica Medina, and she writes about theorizing American girl. And she has a whole section on Josefina and Kaya and the way that they are both supposed to be kind of, quote, pre-American and then quintessential Mm. American, like doing this work at the same time. And she writes about the decision to situate this in 1764, the year of the Sugar Act, not a big deal. Um, And so, like, truly, like, the path to, like, changing colonial relationships on the East Coast. And she pulls this quote. um, She got access to some really interesting, like, American girl literature. And I think this quote kind of sums up, like, where they were trying to go with Kaya. The Nez Perce people have lost much over the past 200 years, but they have never lost their spirit. They have worked hard to keep their culture alive and strong no matter where they lived. And they have succeeded. And I think there's kind of an effort um, to like do two things, like to place this pre a major traumatic event, which is the war that takes place in 1877 and the expulsion and the attempted genocide of the Nez Perce people. And there's... I think from what she has been able to find, like there's an attempt from the advisory board to say, don't make this about that central moment of trauma, right? Like counterexample, like tell the Cherokee story and not make it about a forced march. But what ends up happening is like they both find a way to not talk about colonialism by situating it in the 1760s and then still somehow make it very traumatic. Yeah, it's a weird choice. Like, I would understand the decision not to situate it during 1877. Like, right, like, we don't want to just have one story about the Nez Perce people be this really traumatic and well-known narrative about the attempted destruction of their people. But then it is sort of puzzling to go so far out of your way to predate or position Kaya in this specific chronological moment and still situate her in trauma. And you like just have to think about what other stories could we be getting here? Like what other lessons could she be learning, you know, even in a small scale way about herself? Like what if the central conflict of this book is what kind of girl do I want to be in my family? in my tribe, in my community? Like, what do I want to be when I grow up? Like, maybe anxious about, you know, wanting to be an expert horsewoman, but how do I navigate that if I'm also expected to, you know, be a mother? And, you know, like, where do I situate myself in the family with these other interests? Maybe that conflict doesn't exist within the Nez Perce people, because again, they have a different understanding of family. I actually think Another positioning that seems weird here is that it seems like the story we're getting is entirely determined by what white audiences would tolerate and what they could understand. So even like the fact that we're not getting much about the spiritual life of Kaya's family or her tribe, which I actually think is really, really significant and important to how she would move through her day, how she understands space her relationship, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I think that's purposeful because it's not Christian. Um, 
And maybe they didn't want to deal with that. I don't know. I will say the reviews of this book really surprised me because people really like this book. And I was looking for, there are a few that kind of say, hey, you know, I don't know if this is necessarily for every child or Brie says, you know, parts seem unrealistic. And I, I, I tend to agree with that. One reviewer said, this is a good book, though, because I read a lot of good long books, I finished this book in 50 minutes. Please write longer books. And I don't know if that was an auto-generated review, but it shocked me because this book was 40 pages too long for me. Another person says she has a way of showing you how you can be brave and strong. Do you agree with me? And I can't help but think, of the kind of content that I've been seeing a lot of lately, which is, you know, don't tell people that hard things make them stronger or resilient, like work with them to change the things that are forcing them to be strong. And this is such a a really dark chapter. And I think even, even if you said, you know, it's really important for us to represent this culture of rating and the fact that this was a real threat in her life. I think there's a way to not have pages where a young girl literally says, well, I can't say anything or I can't speak up because I'm a slave now. Like, I don't think that's right. it in 2002. No, and I also don't think it's it to make a story where in some ways the most disturbing parts of the story are not what's explicitly stated, but what's implied. So the fact that you have a scene where young men are grabbing Kaya and her sister and putting them on the back of a horse and like taking them um, here, there, and everywhere on their way back to their home. It, there's a lot of implied threats of physical violence, which are delivered upon, threats to me of sexual violence, um, so many different things that are just sort of implied, which in many ways are more chilling if they're not explicitly drawn out. So I just, I'm shocked to hear people any of any age are reviewing this book well. And I'm just sort of wondering, like, I would love to have been a fly on the wall during the stories meetings about this book. Because, of course, like we're name checking Janet Shaw. But as you've taught me, you know, you've done some research into some of the advisors on the Kaya stories. So, I mean, what have you unearthed about that? Yeah, here's the actual crime that these books are just not about them. So this could be a whole other episode, but Francis Paisano, who was one of the consultants, was a self and family described lifelong teacher and learner. When she first got her training to learn how to be a teacher, which was a dream of hers, um, she was assigned to work in the lunchroom despite having training to actually be a teacher. And someone advocated for her and she was able to get the position that she deserved. Uh, Frances actually worked for years on textbook accuracy. She was a huge advocate for language. She honestly sounds like this amazing, phenomenal person. She did attend the Sherman Indian School, which was a boarding school, and that's where she met her husband. I should also add, she is a Virgo who was born in 1921. I knew Um, you were going to do that. And she only passed a few years ago, but she was the Nez Perce Female Elder of the Year. She honestly just sounds like this amazing person. Like she worked on Idaho textbook reform. She loved to travel. She was very involved in Head Start. Just this really active, lively person. Um, And she was actually taking Nez Perce language classes um, when she sustained a fatal injury that, you know, toward the end of her life. But her family writes about the fact that she like this, this is who she was, right? Like she was a much older woman still learning, right? Still trying to, you know, like be an important part of this community. Um, Rosa Yearout, who is the other consultant who is identified as uh, part of the Nez Perce tribe, owns the dreamerhorsefarm.com. Okay, I'm interested. She brings in, here's the thing about Rosa, was not expecting to learn this. Rosa taught me so much on her website about the importance of horses in Nez Perce resistance. So when the U.S. government wages war on the Nez Perce people in 1877, she writes about how horses are the literal vehicles that they use to escape. And and Mm. horses are this really important part of a 1,500-mile journey that they take. 
In the 1990s, according to her website, there is an attempt among horse breeders to reclaim the Nez Perce horse line. If you are a horse person, I'm sure I did not say that correctly, but please go to her website because she has beautiful photos. Um, we can't afford her horses, nor can we care for them. But what are we talking um, about budget-wise? How much? Thirty-five hundred. What? I think that's base model, though. That's not like the Oof. top. Wow. Okay. But check out her website. We'll be sure to add it in the links. Um, but I I love the way that for one of the consultants, language was this really essential way of connecting with heritage, and then for this second consultant the horse breeding, the care, the the riding of these horses, like that's her way of connecting with heritage. And it's like, why didn't they get the word processor? I mean, honestly, you do have to kind of wonder why American Girl hired the person who literally wrote the pioneer books, like the colon, like the colonizer books in a sense, like why did they think she would be interested in or equipped to do the flip side of that coin when there are plenty of indigenous writers who are more than probably more than willing at that stage and ready to tell, to craft like really interesting Kaya stories. I would, I would argue that at this stage of the game, rather than, I don't know if Kaya is still on offer, but I would love to see a rewrite of these books. Like, keep Kai in the same time period, but, like, can we please hire somebody else, even a team of Indigenous writers, to just to do something here. I mean, I think um, the showrunner of Rutherford Falls, we talked about this a little bit, that there's a new show called Rutherford Falls on Peacock that is co-created by um, Mike Schur, Ed Helms, and... I want to make sure I get her name correct. Sierra Teller Ornelas, who is both um, a woman of both indigenous and Mexican descent. And she's hired a writer's room of there's 10 writers and five of them are indigenous to tell a story about a town called Rutherford Falls. That is the home of a dispute between um, a descendant of Rutherford played by Ed Helms, who is like extreme white man, like my history equals history of the nation. Therefore, it must be preserved. And the local indigenous tribe who her character runs the cultural center in the casino and she's trying to get more respect within her tribe so she can build a standalone museum. And Ed Helms is her friend and really supports her, but also is supporting this vision of the town's history, which for him is focused on maintaining a statue of the founder of the town, who's his ancestor, at a time when obviously statues are seen as symbols of white supremacy and of kind of historical interpretation we're trying to move away from. So it sounds very serious and academic, but actually it's not. I've seen the first two episodes and I thought it was really funny. But I kept thinking, like, why can't we have somebody like this revisit the Kaya books? Well, I think, you know, and I I actually never finished this series. I know we have a few listeners this will upset. I never finished Parks and Recreation. What? But I think, I mean, I know. Whoa, where did you stop? I watched the last episode after skipping like two seasons. (laughs) How come I've never heard this? Because it's, I I think it's taboo. (gasps) Wait, so so, you never saw the episode where little Sebastian dies? I know of it. You never heard 50,000 candles in the wind? So I've processed a lot of this via osmosis, but I also quit The Office and then just watched the finale. I'm not going to Kaya myself and be like, I'm a bad person, but I know. You're not Um, a bad person, but it's just a surprising choice. (laughs) It is surprising, but I think something that that show both represented and satirized. If you recall, when they would walk down the hallway, they had the murals, which displayed really graphic violence between settlers, colonists, and indigenous people. And I think the way that that was all presented in a very kind of flip way is just so representative of American culture, right? Like the fact that this like violence against indigenous people is both everywhere and not really dealt with. I I do think... One of the stronger parts of the book that I wish was longer is the way that Kaya's father comforts her at the very end and affirms and validates that it's not her fault and that they're so proud of her. So Kaya 
is with two hawks and they're in a pretty perilous situation and she like saves the day again by creating this small rock structure like calling upon herself and like pride in her name and puts a magpie feather in it and that's how they kind of know to be looking for her and she finds her family she's close to her family's lands and her father kind of validating that that was amazing. Like, I wish that was more of yeah. the book because it shows girls in a way that's really resourceful. And I know that there are some really excellent studies on the ways in which captivity and slavery are different between indigenous cultures and other cultures on the American continent. I'll recommend Slavery in Indian Country by Christina Snyder. Like this book is not that, just in case you're wondering. No, it's not that. And, you know, it's just, I guess if anything else, I think I'm just really disappointed or frustrated with it. Like, I feel like a parent who's saying not helpful things to Kaya, like it's sort of shaming. And I don't necessarily want like the medium to match the message here, but I think there's just so much possibility with this series. So when you see the choices that feel like tropes that we've seen before um, of like victimhood, when actually she's super resourceful or like shaming of a, a girl being independent when actually, you know, she is really protective of her family and friends. It's just sort of, it boggles the mind in many ways, like the extent to which this series goes way out of its way to not blame white colonists, but and allegedly not blame Native Americans. And yet the the solution seems to be to situate guilt at the central character. And I don't really know how that gets resolved or where that goes from here. So to have a, a positive note because there Please. are parents who listen to the show who wonder you know is this a good fit and i would say definitely read blogs by indigenous people that discuss what they see as the merits of the story versus some of the drawbacks but i made a short list and i think we'll share this and i would love for people to add to it i reached out to some folks to learn about best books about by and for indigenous people that are really accessible to readers of the same age as Kaya's Escape. One is The Thundermaker by Alan Sillyboy and Lindsay Marshall, Kunu's Basket by Lee Decora Francis, Green Grass Running Water by Thomas King, and we got a special recommendation for the YA novel Riding the Trail of Tears by Blake Hausman, which takes a kind of fantastical approach to retelling a Cherokee story, and that came really highly recommended. We can also link to some blogs that give you, I don't want to say alternatives because there are people for whom these books are really meaningful, and mm. I I know that we get asked, like, so should I read this with my child? And I don't know that that's our call, right? Because we don't right. know what makes sense for your family. But I do think because this story does have meaning, reading the blog work around it that unpacks it from an Indigenous perspective is really important. Yeah, I agree with that. It sounds like really great recommendations. And there is like such a vibrant blogging community around a lot of these issues that it's really worth checking out. So we'll definitely link to some of these great writers. I just have no idea where we're going next with Kaya. I know I can look and literally find out. I know that it involves medicine, but honestly, like I'm still thinking about the time that Josefina knocks over the medicine. Literally can't. Does she say shame and run away? Oh, God. I mean, it's like, why would we replicate that? Oh, my God. Like, this is so dark. Oh, my God. I I don't know. I just want to add my own recommendation to your list, which is we were looking for this book before we started recording, but I'm about 150 pages into Firekeeper's Daughter, and I really, really like it. So... Thank you to the listeners who recommended that. We have we did a Nancy Drew, what I'll call a misguided Nancy Drew, on our recent Patreon. <laughs> that I literally had to draw a map of the plot to try to unpack it, and surprise, still couldn't figure it out. But anyway, was excited to learn that's not my fault. But this was described to me as 
an indigenous native Nancy Drew mystery. And that's a really good description of it, but it offers amazing histories of different Native American groups and cultures and customs. And it's by an indigenous, a great indigenous writer. And we'll probably do something about this book just because I'm really enjoying it. Allison's going to check it out, but you know, you might just want to pick that up in advance. Perhaps it's really good. Yes. And if you like to follow us along on our Patreon, the next book that we're reading is Midnight at the Telegraph Club, which we are really excited about. And that is a brand new YA novel. So I think after we spent some time dipping back into Nancy Drew, we were like, okay, we need to leave the (laughs) 1930s. I will say this. I did this for the listeners. I reread Island of the Blue Dolphins. We don't even have time. Mary? I did it because it was asked of me more than four times. And when people write to us and I say, I'm taking notes, I take notes. And my mind is an imperfect filing cabinet, but it is deep and vast. So I pick it out from the library on Friday. I read it in a night. Reader, it was not pleasant. We'll talk about it some other time. Oh my God. Worse than than Lilac Inn? He was born in the 19th century, and I'm not saying that's an automatic indictment, but it's not great. Damn, that's rough. Okay, if I may, if you do use Peek into the Past as a kind of educational tool, which I know a lot of our listeners do, Mary mentioned last time really looking at the sources of the photos. And so I think to myself, well, Allison, like, look up the collection they come from, because a lot of them are from present-day Idaho. E. Jane Gay was the photographer who took a lot of these images, and you can actually still see all of her photos. They're part of a digital collection on Idaho history. Really important to understand the context in which she took this trip. She was not hired as a photographer. She just kind of did that and was very interested in making photographs of very particular kinds of domestic scenes and kind of presenting a certain idea of civilization. I will add this about E. Jane Gay straight from her Wikipedia page. Gay neither married nor had children, but had close ties with her niece and namesake Emma Jane Gay. After the expedition, where she took these photos, Gay returned to Washington, where she and Alice Fletcher shared a house until Gay and Emma traveled for an extended stay. Hmm. And then there's a floating link to famous queer photographers. I know that two plus two equals four. Wow. I mean, Gay, you say? Uh, That's fascinating. I would love to know more about this. I will definitely be researching her more. It's really interesting to think about like photography in that period as sort of like a queer space or almost like third gender occupation as a third gender where it allows women access to domestic and private spaces to take photographs of men, which would not have been cool in certain circles to be alone with men. But if you have a camera between you, like suddenly that's okay. And as you're describing, like to go into a space where she's almost playing an anthropological role with all of its probably connected racial and empirical issues and problems attached. But that's really fascinating. Yeah, it's also an instance where, you know, to your comment about Nancy Drew, sometimes things are presented as mysteries that are not. That's 100%. I love reading old, like, biographies of women in these situations where the biographer is, like, seemingly performing cluelessness. Yes. Or just going so far out of their way to be like, we really, there's, it's impossible to know. Like, we can never really know what was happening here. And it's like, hey, girl, I think we know. And it's like people buried an inch apart, (laughs) holding hands. (laughs) And they're like, we had literally, like, it's impossible to say. There's no way. There's no way of knowing, like, yes, her husband was buried in another state and she wanted nothing to do with that. But, you know, it's impossible to know. I mean, it's just a mystery for the ages. No. I mean, to start with Rebecca Black, to end with E. Jane Gay. That's what we do here. That's all All these queer heroes. I mean, Wow. Wow. I'm just thinking about Friday and those lyrics again. It's a mystery to the ages. Like, why would you say waiting at the bus stop and then the car pulls up and it's like sitting in the front seat, sitting in the back seat? You never intended to get on that bus. First of all, it's metaphysical. Second why of all, why would you do that? 
But second of all, it's about the JFK assassination. And I think wow. whatever she knows or whatever she knew 10 years ago, we're closer <sighs> to being safe with that knowledge now. If you can read Kaya mm -hmm. and still believe fantasy stories about JFK's murder, I can't go there wow. with you. Really can't. Wow. It's like, wow, there's just so much there. I literally can't. This is sort of unrelated, but I'm currently in the midst of rage watching Hemingway's, Ken Burns's Hemingway documentary oh series. Oh boy, here we go. With the cats, pterodactyl the, cats. Yeah. Literally can't. I'm not at that part. I'm not at that scene in his life yet. But it's so shocking to me. Speaking of like people who willfully will be blind to certain things, the extent to which Ken Burns and his other filmmaker um, collaborator have gone to basically find a woman who would be willing to be a talking head to be like, listen, people say he's misogynist. That's not true. Like, here's two stories where he talks about abortion. Like, clearly he understood women and he was woke. And like, you guys just don't understand. And someone else was like, well, and he also was like super anti-Semitic and created this really like awful depiction of a person that he also called his friend who was Jewish. And that's created like had this insane legacy that he's distanced himself from and his scholars like don't want to deal with it. And it's like, hey, Ken, remember all the times he says the N word? And also he comes from a super racist place that is still like struggling with those issues and you never discuss that. I find myself yelling at the screen many times and I don't know why I keep doing this to myself, Allison, but I'm just, it's really hard for me. And then last night I read an interview with Bradley Whitford where he, in the New York times where he was like the things I can't live without. And one of them is like, I'm obsessed with Ken Burns documentaries. And I'm like, yeah, I've seen the West wing that all tracks, but I say that as a fan, it's just hard for me right now, Allison. That's all I'm going to say. That's it. Mary, if people want to rank Ken Burns docs Please don't. from Prohibition to Shakers with their rankings in between. I won't accept anything else as the top or the I bottom. I blocked out that he made a Shakers documentary. I didn't. I've watched it three times. I have also seen it many times. Oh my God. Where should they find you? Wow. Well, if you would love to reflect with me about, you know, things Shelby Foote said as a talking head in the Civil War documentary or any other of Ken Burns's magical moments, please find me on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney or on Twitter at Mary Mahoney123. And Allison, if somebody wants to hit you with their own version of the Ken Burns effect, you know, as they share their hot takes on Kaya or really anything else, Rosamund Pike, any oh. other great topics of our times, where can they find you? Yeah, so I'm Allison Horrocks on everything. Wow. You can also reach out to us directly on our contact page on our website for American Girls Pod. We have a telephone number that we don't answer because we're millennials. Thank you. We have a Twitter, a girls pod, and we're American Girls Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. You can find us on all of those places places. We do also have a special part of our website where you can find promo codes that we say in the show that will be hosted up there. Yes. And thanks everyone for supporting the show. We're so, so appreciative of that. And we're so looking forward to a bunch of kind of extra things that we're planning, including our own celebration for the anniversary of American Girl that will not involve $125 cupcakes as yet. Like we haven't fully planned this out, but I'm guessing that's not part of it. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to like, put that out there, but you know, we're also thinking about a watch along on our Patreon. We do a lot of fun watch alongs. So we're thinking about a watch along from the year that American Girl was founded. Also the year I was founded 1986. So if you have any suggestions, please get at us. And we're so appreciative of the Patreon supporters. We just added some new channels on our discord. We have a TRL. What did I call that channel? TR spell. I'm not even sure, but we talk about music old and new. We have a crafting channel. We have a doll channel. We have pop culture hot takes channel, which is truly full of hot takes. I mean, it's such a fun community. Thanks to everyone who's a part of it. So thank you so much to everyone who listens here and supports us in so many places. We are so appreciative. Get on and on, everybody's